Now, we are going through the Old Testament. Those of you who are visiting for the first time or maybe here and didn't stand up, then that's all right. Uh, for the first time, we're going through the Old Testament by characters, okay? So we started off with Hannah uh, and, of course, the birth of Samuel, and last week we looked at um, uh, Eli. Now, um, we're uh, going to look at another character today, but he's not going to be like a character that you expect. He's not going to be like a character that you expect, Uh, The title of uh, this message is When Your Good Luck Charm Fails. When Your Good Luck Charm Fails. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've got a good luck charm. uh, You you probably would be embarrassed to mention it. Uh, Please don't hold up a crucifix. Uh, As I said last week, uh, uh, there's uh, Christian good luck charms that can... uh, 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 operate out there. Uh, I mentioned NBA basketball players. They can't wear necklaces anymore, but I remember them uh, on the foul, on the free throw line kissing the crucifix and uh, then shooting the free throw. And uh, um, uh, I always thought, what if he misses the free throw? Is that God's fault then? That, you know, if he kissed the crucifix, is it Jesus' fault? Or maybe he didn't kiss it right or, or, or something like that, you know. And uh, beware of uh, good luck charms, even if they are Christian good luck charms. Now, last week it was introduced because the Israelites, sadly, because of their lack of obedience and their departure from the Lord, had begun to look Uh, at this object right here, not in the correct way of viewing it as the symbol of God's presence with Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, but because of their lack of obedience, they had um, begun to look, sadly, uh, at the Ark of the Covenant. No, this, this doesn't, it doesn't slide back in ancient times. As I said last week, uh, this is a model of the Ark of the Covenant in the model of the tabernacle uh, in uh, southern Israel today. So they just make that slide back there. That's why it's an opening here for you to see the symbols of the Ten Commandments in there, the two tables of the law, uh, the uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And who knows the third? What? A jar of manna, good. Why do I need to teach these people? You know, wow. Yes, Aaron's rod that budded, the jar of manna, and the Ten Commandments. And you can see in the model uh, there as you look in. But uh, normally it's, it's closed. It probably did open, uh, but not on a hinge. And we'll see that opening in our message today. Um, so who is our character today? I was, I was, I was bemoaning to my wife around Wednesday or Thursday. I said, oh, I don't know this, this, uh, uh, events in chapters five and six, honey. I, I just don't know exactly what I'm going to say. And she says, well, I thought we were going through characters. I said, okay, I'll just skip over it then. 
because there's nobody really named as a significant character in chapters 5 and 6. And then I repented and uh, (laughs) said, no, I better not do that. That's the easy way out. Uh, Let's look at chapters 5 and 6. But Samuel is not mentioned. Uh, He's in the background. He's not yet emerged. Next week, stay tuned. Next week, we will see Samuel emerging as the main character in the book of 1 Samuel, named after him. Uh, We'll see that next week in chapter 7. He's in the background. A good friend of mine came up to me already anticipating this and said, where is Samuel during 1 Samuel 5, 6, and 7? Uh, Last week, we saw the ark brought out as a good luck charm because that's basically how they viewed it. So they could win the battle against the Philistines. And guess what? The good luck charm didn't bring them good luck. Uh, Not only were they defeated by the Philistines at Ebenezer, Ebenezer, uh, ironically named the Stone of Help, but God did not give them help in that battle, even though his ark was brought out because the people's attitude was wrong. The chest had just become a good luck charm to them because it was a symbol of God's presence with them. But God's presence with his people is not dependent on a physical object. When you obey me, I will be with you. And they were not obeying the Lord. So they took the physical object, symbolic of God's presence, but God wasn't with them. And so they were defeated in battle, and this ark was captured. So today, the character is this box. (laughs) So we are teaching through the the character, the chief player who is all over the place in chapters 5 and 6. The character is the ark of the covenant. And fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. For the Ark of the Covenant in chapters 5 and 6. Now, where's Samuel? He's in the background. Maybe he had not yet reached 25. When That's when you enter into um, the, uh, the ministry. Or this was simply an event that happened uh, that introduces the need for Samuel in chapter 7. It's true, it says, that as a young man growing to maturity, the word of the Lord began to come to him. And then we have this, this uh, parenthesis here on the trials and travails of not only Eli, who, who dies at the end of chapter 4, as we saw last week, but now um, is, is going to be... Um, uh, 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 excuse me, Eli, who, who died at the end of chapter five, uh, four. Uh, and now we see what happens to the ark in its captivity. God, rather than cooperate with the idea that somehow his ark is, is a magic amulet, not agreeing with that, allows his ark to be captured and to go into captivity with the Philistines. God risks his own reputation because no doubt there were people saying when they were defeated and the ark was captured, where is God? I thought God was with us. He risked his own reputation, even risking that people would say that wrongly 
say that, to teach Israel a lesson that the Ark of the Covenant is not a good luck charm. But the sovereign God is in control not only of Israel's victories, but the sovereign God is in control even when Israel is defeated. It was a hard lesson for them to learn. So let's look at that, all right? So the travails of the ark, a little geography reminder here. We're going to cover all of this, the whole circle here. So I hope you can see it. I know you folks over here and in the extreme over there can't see it, but here is Shiloh. This is where the ark was. Here, the Philistines moved up the coast at Aphek, right east of Tel Aviv today. And the children of Israel's army uh, camped at Evan Ezer facing the, uh, the uh, Philistines. So to bring, uh, they were defeated the first day and word came back and they said, oh, if we take the ark, then God will give us victory. So they take the ark down, and as you can see there, in the battle the next day, not only was there a great slaughter of Israelites, but the ark was captured. Now see this, this is preview of coming attractions. Notice this ark, over seven months, goes here, down the coast to Ashdod, then to Gath, where Goliath was from, then to Ekron. And after seven months, the Philistines said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't want it. We don't want it. It's not bringing us good luck either. And so they send it back to Beit Shemesh, Beit Shemesh, the house of the sun. Uh, This is Samson country here, but it's after uh, Samson died. And uh, here in Beit Shemesh, as we're going to see, The children of Israel, instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, are fascinated that their good luck charm has come back to them, and it still does not bring them good luck. This is a hard lesson for Israel to experience, and I want to try to work with you through that. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is what is called a Bible reading. I am going to read it not all the way through, and then go back and preach on it. I'm going to read it, and as we go through it, I'll be commenting on it, the uh, narration, because of these uh, two uh, chapters. So first of all, where did the ark start? What town? Shiloh. All right, good. Okay, good. And then the Israelites brought it out to uh, Ebenezer, but uh, uh, it was uh, the, they were defeated. The ark was captured, so the next place it goes to Ashdod. First Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer or Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now today, Ashdod is a major seaport for Israel. Uh, Ashdod and Ashkelon, Ekron and Gath Four of uh, the five Philistine cities are within the boundaries of the country of Israel today. Uh, do I see her here? I'm not sure. Is, uh, is Miss Karatki here? Raise your hand. Angelina Karatki, she here? She actually is from Ashkelon. Ashkelon is one of the ancient Philistine cities. Right below Ashkelon is Ashdod. 
Ashdod is a major seaport for Israel. Very ironic that where the ark was and, and this pagan Philistine temple is now a major Israelite city. Now they bring it to Ashdod. Uh, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. Now this is a pagan temple. The Lord is allowing his ark to be put in a pagan temple. As I said again, the Lord is willing to risk his reputation publicly to teach Israel and the Philistines a lesson. Now, this is a spoil of war. And oftentimes in ancient times, when they would uh, capture spoils from an enemy, they oftentimes would put them in their own temple, all right? This was common. So they put the spoil of war in their own temple right next to their god, Dagon. Sometimes uh, uh, commentators will say this is a fish god because of dog means fish in Hebrew, but actually it's probably more Dagon, which is Hebrew for grain, for grain. It was a grain god, a god of harvest. So here is the Ark of the Covenant. This right here is right beside a pagan idol. And, and the Philistines' attitude is this, well, this shows the superiority of Dagon to Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. Oh, were they wrong. Oh, were they wrong. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rode early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon or Dagon and put him back in his place, probably saying, well, maybe there was a little tremor and Dagon tilted over or something happened like that. Let's give it another day. Oh boy, look at the next day. Verse four, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Dagon falls again. This time his hands are broken off and his head is broken off. And they're saying, wait a minute, a tremor two nights in a row, a tremor that only knocked over Dagon. They're starting to add two and two. Uh, Unfortunately, they don't get four. They only get three and a half. They said, oh boy, maybe we don't have him in the right place, okay? Uh, Verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now watch, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy. Tell me, how many of you remember that I said last week, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. How many of you remember that I said last week, the word glory and the word heavy are related? Yes, two of you. Good, good, good. Uh, yeah, right, two of you. The, the word glory and the rate, uh, word heavy are, are, are similar. And there's some irony going on here. Uh, God's glory is what makes him heavy, uh, what makes him solid, what makes him glorious. So uh, remember what they said when the uh, ark of the Lord was captured and the uh, representative came back and told Eli, 
uh, he died, and then the da- uh, the wife of the uh, uh, priest, Phinehas, as she's dying, uh, she says, name him Ichabod, because the glory has departed from Israel. The heaviness of God is gone. Now, here's the irony. They get the glory of the Lord, they think, and the Lord's hand is heavy on them. That appears also in verse 10. It's a very, uh, uh, excuse me, verse uh, uh, 11. Very interesting uh, uh, play on words there. The Lord's hand was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. Now, there's some weird stuff in this chapter. There's no way to explain it. It's weird. Hemorrhoids, rats, gold rats, and here it's coming, gold hemorrhoids. There's no way around it. There's some weirdness in this chapter. I'm going to comment on that weirdness a little bit later on, all right? So, uh, they're stricken with tumors. Now, you say, where did these tumors come from? Well, not enough preparation H to go around. I shouldn't make jokes about it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I shouldn't make jokes about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the men of Ashdod, uh, forget it. See how things were. And they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us because his hand is against us and against Dagon, our God. So what do they do? Send it back to Israel? No, they say they had a pagan conception. You got to have things in the right place. And if you get things in the right place, then the gods will cooperate. So the ark isn't in the right place. So let's put it in another place. And maybe we can manipulate God to work for us. So they sent and gathered the lords of the Philistines, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God be brought around to Gath. Now, Goliath was from Gath, all right? So it was a town that was very near to the border of Israel. They brought the ark of the God of Israel there, and after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. He afflicted the men of the city, both young and all, with tumors that broke out on them. They said, man, this is not bringing us good luck. Every time this, you know, we move this thing, you know, we get hemorrhoids. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So they said, how about our neighbors from Ekron? Now, it's not that they were picking on each other. They had the pagan conception that God is in a box but God has got to be in the right place at the right time. So if we manipulate God around, then we can control the events. They had this pagan conception. Balaam. Balaam is hired to curse Israel. And Balak sets up pagan altars and Balaam starts to curse Israel. And instead of saying, may God curse you. He opens his mouth and he says, may God bless you. And Balak says, maybe we didn't have it in the right place. So let's build an altar over here. So he takes Balaam over here. All this is in Numbers 23 and 24. You can read it on your own. And he says, all right, now Balaam, sick him. So he he wants him to say, may God curse you. And he says, may God bless you. So he takes the altar and goes to another altar and says, let's get it in the right place. Now, will you do it again? 
May God bless you. And he says, go home. The pagan conception is if we get it in the right place at the right time and manipulate the spirits, then it'll work. Wrong. So here's the same conception. It didn't work for us in in, in uh, Ashdod. It didn't work for us in Gath. Maybe it'll work in Ekron. Again, the pagan conception. So the people of the Ekron said, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. Now watch, the hand of God was very heavy. The heaviness of God was lost to Israel. The heaviness of God came to the Philistines and the Lord's hand was heavy on them. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So what'd they do? They appointed a committee. Committees will always solve things. <laughs> appointed a committee. Let's appoint a committee and study this matter and say, you know, all of this may just have been coincidences. It just had, maybe it was just time for us to have hemorrhoids and rats. <laughs> anyway, so it's not really connected with the art. Numbskulls, you know, they were thick. They weren't getting it. They said, maybe it's just a coincidence. So the committee gave, you know, I think the people were saying, let's get rid of this box. We don't like this box, but the committee studied it and said, well, let's make sure that it's not just a coincidence. How are we going to do this? This is a crazy passage. This is what they did. Keep reading. Verse 2, Philistines called for the priests and the diviners. They said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God to Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Maybe we can appease this Yahweh God of Israel with some sort of offering to take away all the plagues. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. They said, what is the guilt offering? And they had, now here's here's where it gets weird. They answered, five golden tumors. Don't ask. Don't ask. All right. Five golden hemorrhoids. Don't ask. And five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Remember, there were five Philistine cities. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Send back five tumors and five mice. Why mice or rats? Probably, and I think this is probably correct. This was a form of bubonic plague. Why the rats? From 1348 to 1350 was the Black Plague in Europe. One third of Europe's population died. And they think it all goes back to some rats jumping off some boats in Spain that had been to the Middle East and they brought back rats infected with this. From Spain, almost all the way across Europe, 
the bubonic plague wiped out one out of every three people living in Western Europe. And it was because of rats. So they think that because of the five rats, gold rats, five, five gold tumors, it was probably a form of the bubonic plague. Now, this was, this was um, sympathetic magic. You take the objects that are causing you a problem and you make models of them. This is very common in, in, uh, in paganism. You make models of them and then present that to God and he'll relieve you of the problems. I, I can see some people uh, having ministered and lived in certain cultures say, you know, that's not far removed from some things today in certain cultures, some sort of sympathetic magic. Maybe God will remove these things if we send him models as offerings. Again, thinking carnally, physically, not realizing that that's not the way God works. But stay tuned, Israel is still hadn't relieved from that uh, idea either. So verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Hmm. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off you and your God's and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh had hardened their hearts? They had heard about what happened with Israel in Egypt. And they knew when the Egyptians got rid of the Israelites and sent them out, then the plagues probably stopped. So, all right, let's do that. Let's get rid of this, this ark, which has not been lucky for us at all. After he dealt severely with them, did not they send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows. Now it really gets weird. Two, a new cart and two milk cows on which there had never come a yoke. That means these are not working cows. These are dairy cows, all right? These are not cows that normally carry pull carts. They've had no harness on them. They are milk cows and we know that they are dairy cows but because of their calves, all right? Uh, two milk cows on which there had never come a yoke, yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. Now, I don't know much about dairy cows, but I know one thing. When you got calves and they get thirsty, the mother cow has got something built in called udders, that become full, that need to be drained, all right? So either you go out in the morning and you do that. I remember going to an Amish farm in Pennsylvania and our little Amy, she went out. They said, oh, you got to put on other clothes, Amy, when you go out. So she was dressed like an Amish milkwoman. <laughs> and she went out and she's Daddy, look, I'm doing it, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Yeah. So I can't say we are dairymen, but my daughter Amy, she milked the cows, okay? Because if you didn't, uh, uh, if you're not going to milk me, will you please send a calf along, okay, to relieve me? Full udders need to be drained. Why in the world are they doing this? Because they said, Maybe it was just a coincidence. Let's make it very hard so it won't be a coincidence. Let's take two milk cows, 
take their calves away from them, hitch them onto a cart, which they've never pulled, and they want to have their, their babies getting their milk, put the ark on the cart and just let it go. Nobody leading it. As a matter of fact, five Philistine lords are walking behind it. And we'll see what happens. You see, if all of this was just a coincidence that happened at Ashdod, at, uh, at Gath, and at Ekron, then those cows are going to go, oh! As a matter of fact, the text says, they go, oh! The text says it. The King James says, lowing as they went. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. My wife says, I don't like it when you talk about sheep because you always go, meh. <laughs> then I talk about cows. Mm-hmm. Why? Where's my babies? And they start walking. And they start walking. Despite everything being against those cows, walking all the way back the seven miles to Beit Shemesh, they keep walking. (gasps) Nobody leading them. They even make a turn, and they come into the Sorek Valley, and they head straight for Beit Shemesh, lowing as they went. And five of the Philistine lords are walking behind them saying, are they really going to go all the way back to Beit Shemesh? They did. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. (laughs) Verse 13. The people of Beit Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. They had heard that the ark had been been, uh, snatched. They had heard. And they see the ark and they're excited. And we're excited for them. But the story doesn't end there. Story doesn't end there. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. No more of that. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it. That's one that had the tumors and the mice in it. Okay, and they put it on the great stone and the men of Beit Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. I'm telling you, the Bible has the, uh, the, uh, the sound of truth, the uh, ring of truth to it. I stand with my people on Beit Shemesh and I point out to them, that's where they stood right there. That's where they stood. That's where the field is, where they were harvesting. That's where the Philistine Lord saw it and turned around. The Bible has the ring of truth to it. It says they turned back the same day. You can walk from Ekron to Beit Shemesh and back to Ekron in the same day. The Bible has the ring of truth to it. Uh, uh, just remarkable. And they walked back, and, then, and now they said, no, you know, it wasn't a coincidence. It was that stinking trophy of war that we took, put it in our our uh, temple that brought us bad luck. Good riddance. It's interesting how I, for, I forgot to mention this. The uh, oftentimes in ancient times when you would take uh, 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 captives, 
they would cut off their hands, cut off their hands. We see this uh, in, in a lot of ancient texts. Uh, they, they would cut off their hands of captives so they wouldn't rebel or, and things like that. Just the opposite ha- ha- happens to Dagon. He loses his hands and his head because God is teaching a lesson here. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. I wish I could end this story this way. The children of Israel had a party and they're out with rhythmic movements on the ground. It's not really dancing. It's rhythmic movements. They're dancing and and God is blessing and, and they have a preacher and they have a Sunday service and... Nobody even knows what I'm referring to. Anyway, anyway, uh, and 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 uh, it's not what happened. It's not what happened. If I had written the story, I'd end it that way. I'd end it that way. They'd have a party, and and God would be blessing them. And now they've got the ark back. And if I had written it, that movie would have a happy ending. This movie doesn't have a happy ending. As they're happy, they say, wonder what's inside the ark. Wonder what's inside the ark, okay? Wonder what's inside the ark. So they, they pull it open and they look inside and they die. They die. There's some question whether it's 70 or 50,070 Ancient texts disagree. Let me tell you, 70 is a big number. And God strikes them dead. He spoiled their party. Yeah. I wouldn't have written it that way. And we'd be the poorer if I had written it. Because God is teaching a lesson here even with his people. He didn't rescue the ark at Ebenezer. He allowed it to be captured. Now when the ark is coming back, because these people are disobeying the Lord. How are they disobeying the Lord? Only the Levites were to handle the ark and it was to be covered completely and never looked into by anybody, even Levites. So the sad story is because out of their curiosity, seven, at least 70 people die and they say, you know, the Ibex campus is not far from here. Let's send to the Ibex campus, men of Kerjeth Jerem, Ibex is right next to it. <laughs> and some boys from Ibex came down and carried it to Kerjeth Jerem and they reverently put it in the house of a Levite covering it over, not curiously looking inside of it. Oh, John, preach longer, second hour. I can't get this in in five minutes. I got to talk to you about this. Be with me. Trust me, I'll let you out before 1230. (laughs) What's going on here? Two things. This is weird. 
this is odd. This is strange. It's got to be true. Nobody could dream this up. It's got to be true. I want to tell you something. If you and I sat down to write the Bible, and I came up with this story, you would say, Will, nobody's going to believe that stuff. It's too weird. Write a happy ending to it, Will. The very fact of its weirdness and oddness and strangeness I th- is a testimony to its truth because nobody could make up this story. You couldn't sell this. He just left. You couldn't sell this to a movie producer or a movie director. They would say, nobody's going to believe this crazy stuff. The very fact that it's weird and crazy is a testimony to its truth, to its truth. But what's going on here? What's going on here? First of all, what's going on with Beit Shemesh? Let me read you this. Believers can fall into this same Beit Shemesh mode of thinking. We want our God to be casual and easygoing. He is, quote, the man upstairs rather than the Lord of hosts. He's chummy rather than holy. We want God to be our co-pilot. And we get worried when he wants to fly the plane. God wants us to bow before his holiness with respect and reverence, be it in Shiloh or be it at Beit Shemesh. There's a danger in being in the presence of the Lord of hosts, especially when we come into his presence with arrogance or apathy. We must come before his presence with Humility and brokenness, that is what was missing. Why did the ark go into captivity in the first place? Because the Israelites were not repenting, were not obeying God. So he allowed his ark to be captured. When it comes back, there's no word of repentance. There's no word of humiliation. No, it's curiosity. Let's look and see what's inside there. Our God is sovereign, he's holy, and we oftentimes forget that. We must come before him with humility and brokenness. You see, this is the tail end of the book of Judges. The Judges, really, period, has not really come to an end yet. Eli was the last judge. It's oftentimes forgotten. What was the characteristic people of the book of Judges in those days? Everyone did that was right in his own eyes. See, this is the end of the book of Judges. Stay tuned. If you're all pessimistic and beat up about this crazy story, come back next week. Come back next week. When Samuel leads the people in repentance in chapter 7. So come back next week. This is a this is a sad, beat-up chapter. It is. No humility, no brokenness, but the key to victory against the Philistines next week, chapter 7, will be put away the idols, repent, and return to the Lord with all your heart. And guess what happens? They win against the Philistines next week. You say, well, if you're telling me the story, why do I need to come back next week? <laughs> For the animal sounds.
Perhaps the prophet Habakkuk said it best. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. One more thing before you go. And I got to quote my professor here, Robert Vanoy. The theme of divine sovereignty is all over, 1 Samuel 1 to 6. The question asked by the Philistines, who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel? And the question asked by the Israelite inheritance of Beit Shemesh, who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, 4, 8, and 6, 20? That's the right answer, question. In essence, it's the same question. The answer is always the same. No one can stand in his presence. The response of Eli to the Lord's pronouncement of judgment is the only proper response. It's the Lord's will. Let him do what he thinks best. This mighty God is the Lord of heaven's armies, 1-3. He's the holy God, 6-20. He's the only God, 2-2. And he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, 2-8. He rules over all peoples and nations and delights in doing things in surprising ways. In these chapters, the divine reversal of fortunes anticipated by Hannah's Song of praise, 2, 1 to 10, is prominently displayed. Hannah's barrenness and the birth of Samuel. Judgment on the uh, Eli uh, sons and the call of Samuel to be a prophet. The loss and return of the ark to Israel, chapters 4 to 6, and the victory and defeat of the Philistines. And then next week we'll see the defeat by the Philistines and the victory by Israel. Don't kiss your crucifix. Don't rub your Bible. Oh, take your Bible to wherever you're going because it'll, 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 it'll give us victory. Bring that Bible with us on the amazing race. That will, that will mean we'll probably come in last <laughs> for God to teach us that the Bible is not a good luck charm. You know what you do? Obey the Bible. That's it. Obey what it says, not as a good luck charm, but as a path not only to victory. Joshua, Joshua, you want to win? This book of the law will not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. For then you shall be prosperous, and then you shall have good success. You want success in your Christian life? It's not magic. It's not magic. No. It's obey the Lord. And the Lord will never, Depart from you. Don't treat him as a good luck charm. Treat him as the sovereign God to whom you stand in humility and brokenness. Oh God, bless me as I obey you. That should be our response to this crazy, crazy story. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord God, thank you for even this strange account because of what it teaches you about your sovereignty and your holiness. We pray that we will be obedient and see you work in our lives, not as a magician, not as a good luck charm, but as one who honors obedience and blesses us when we obey you. May that be our desire, not to manipulate you to work for us, but to obey you and watch you work in us. We pray in your son's name, we pray. Amen, amen.